Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 287, interview with Damian Lewis about his latest book, Churchill's Shadow Raiders, The Race to Develop Radar, World War II's Invisible Secret Weapon. Damian Lewis is a number one best-selling author. For decades, he worked as a war and conflict reporter for the world's major broadcasters, reporting from across Africa, South America, the Middle and Far East, and winning numerous awards. His books include the World War II classics SAS Ghost Patrol, Churchill's Secret Warriors, The Nazi Hunters, and Hunting the Nazi Bomb. Today he joins us to discuss his newest book, Churchill's Shadow Raiders, the men who carried out Operation Biting, and how its outcome affected the rest of the war. Mr. Lewis, thank you very much for being with us today. Very good to be here. Thank you. I have to say, considering the date of this operation, which serves as the backbone for your book, I am so glad to have you on because I'm in the same time zone in my podcast, but in the Pacific. So this episode of yours can be a rare bright spot during those dark days of the war in Europe and now in Southeast Asia. So how did this book come about? Yeah, so I was giving a talk to a literary festival. It was a military literary festival in, in England about um, two years ago, maybe slightly longer, and uh, on one of my books. And at the end, a guy came up to me, uh, a, quite an elderly gentleman, and he said, um, that talk was amazing. He said, but um, I run the local uh, radar historical society he said, I don't suppose you know much about the radar wars in Second, in, in Second World War. No one seems to. Right. And I said, well, actually, um, I didn't know quite a lot about it because I've always been fascinated by Operation Biting, which was a commando raid in 1942 to steal the Germans' top secret radar. But I said, you know, can't write a book about it because there's nothing new to tell. Right. And he had this kind of whimsical smile. And he said, um, <laughs> well, he said, we've just saved the whole of the British radar archive from World War II from destruction and kind of let that, you know, drop right. like, like an atom bomb between <laughs> us. Uh, at which stage I said, how, why, where? And he said, well, basically, uh, the, the, the entire British radar archive, so that's all the documents, all the photographs, everything, was, right. was, was stored on the site of the, uh, of the World War II radar establishment. And then eventually it was privatised and they were decommissioning the site and it just got forgotten and it got oh. left to rot in all these abandoned hangars and literally was slated to be pulped and destroyed. And him and a bunch of former radar um, military you know, experts and technicians found out about it. And they managed to get Kinetic, the, um, the, 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 uh, you know, the global military company, to, mm -hmm. to sponsor facilities in which they saved the whole of this archive – so all these massive rooms and, and basically got it out of where it was going to be destroyed and, and put it somewhere where it could be catalogued and studied and preserved for posterity. And to put it in context, you know, mm -hmm. he said to me when we met, you know, we've probably only even looked at 10 percent of the material. Wow. You know, you know, and at that stage, you're like, well, when does a military historian ever get the chance to to pour through a massive World War Two archive of such importance? most of which has never been seen since the Second World War. So, you yeah. know, kind of the rest became, became a shoo-in, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's an incredible story. The only way it could be any better is if you had said he and his uh, elderly friends burst in with guns and took all the papers. That's the only thing that could have made it more <laughs> exciting. But that, that is absolutely incredible. And again, it's, it's, it's a part of that. And we've seen this before where things get lost or things get forgotten, especially in this day and age. And people just want to move on to the future and forget the past. But it's, it's worth remembering. So I'm glad that happened. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. 
So considering um, the story in your book, the, the, the raid that you cover in your book, I think it's worth remembering before we go into the details about this type of air operation was a practically a new thing. It was being pushed by Churchill. Some of the military didn't like it for various reasons. But if you could, if you could give us uh, an overview of the first attempt when it comes to airborne assault, uh, Operation Colossus, I think that would give the story that you're about to tell a lot better context. Yeah, sure. So um, we, it really starts, uh, you know, after Dunkirk, when, you know, the British and French armies were basically thrown off the European continent by the Nazi blitzkrieg, fighting mm. heroically but massively outnumbered and outgunned. And just a few days after Dunkirk, Churchill gave a speech in Parliament and, and exhorted uh, the British nation to stand and fight and find the will to fight right. and find the will to go on the offensive. And as a result of that, uh, an extraordinarily maverick and, 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 and crazy-minded individual <laughs> called... called um, Dudley Clark, Colonel Dudley Clark, whose most famous exploit in the war, by the way, was to be captured dressed as a woman on an espionage mission in 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 uh, in, in, in neutral Spain, and wow. a very convincing woman he was as well. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Clark heard Churchill's exhortation to to you know, for the British nation to find the will to fight, and he had been brought up in South Africa, where the uh, during the the, the Boer War. And it seemed the Boer commandos in operation. So these were, you know, these were South Africans who basically used their own weapons, their own horses, their own their own bush dress, mainly farmers, to raise a militia to fight against the British. And it was this was guerrilla warfare. Mm. And around about fifty thousand Boer commandos had tied down three hundred and fifty thousand British troops and given them and given them a hiding on quite a few occasions. And Clark had been hugely impressed. And so Clark went to Churchill and said. Why don't we form the British version of the commandos? And Churchill, you know, again, a fellow maverick, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the man, the only man that could have saved Britain at that time, but a real maverick and a real, a, a real experimenter with, a, with an extraordinary mind. And Churchill embraced this concept, and he, and he exhorted Clark to get the first raid back across the channel to attack the Germans within the month. And if you think about the fact we'd lost 70,000 men hundreds of thousands of tanks and, and field guns and and, mm. and and weaponry. That was an incredible thing to, to ask him to achieve. Clark went ahead and did that. That was the first seaborne commando raid. Literally within the month, they got back across the channel and they attacked a German outpost. Right. But Churchill had seen the Germans use airborne operations during the Blitzkrieg. And by that, I mean, if you mm. remember, they attacked the Belgium forts, which were supposed to be impregnable, using both parachutists, so paratroopers, and glider-borne troops. And that's how they took the Belgian forts and the Blitzkrieg rolled into France. And Churchill had been hugely impressed. And he was convinced that airborne operations would be key to winning the war. So he exhorted Clark, I don't just want seaborne commandos, I want airborne commandos as well. And so Clark went about raising a force of, he was supposed to uh, recruit 5,000 airborne operators by the end of the war. Now, bear in mind at this stage, when they set up the airborne training school, they mm -hmm. bought in circus, circus high-wire acts. They bought in stuntsmen. There right. was no one who knew how to do this stuff. So this is making it up from scratch. And, and because the, you know, the top brass, the military high command, was so obsessed by the, by the idea that the Germans were going to invade Britain, mm -hmm. and therefore we had to have a defensive mindset, and concentrate all our resources on building the defences of Britain, the idea you might send airborne raiders hundreds of miles behind German lines to attack them where they least expected it, this was, this was heresy. And, right. and Churchill basically had no support from, from high command. And they argued there were no resources, it was not possible, it was not even the appropriate thing to do. But doggedly and amazingly, mm -hmm. and, and with such single-minded spirit, Churchill Clark and a few other like-minded individuals went ahead and raised their, their, their airborne cadre. And then, of course, they needed a mission. And right. the uh, special operations executive, which was uh, Churchill's Ministry for Ungentlemanly Warfare, the deniable top-secret um, uh, fourth arm of the military that he set up to basically break all the rules of war and carry out those missions that you cannot officially do, like assassinations, mm -hmm. raising terrorist armies, 
anything, any kind of skullduggery, which really you shouldn't be getting up to. The SOE already had a plan to to uh, blow up an aqueduct in Italy, which provided fresh drinking water to three million Italians living in and around the key ports of Taranto, Brindisi, and the others on the southern Italian coast, from which all the war material was being dispatched to North Africa for the North Africa campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you could if you could blow up the, the aqueduct, deprive those three million Italians of drinking water, you'd shut down the ports and it could it could turn the tide of the fortunes in North Africa. So it was incredibly um, you know, exciting proposition. Uh, but the idea of, of of killing three million three million Italians, most yeah. of whom were civilians, of thirst, death by thirst, was kind of uh, somewhat um, <laughs> controversial. Right. Probably against the uh, against the Geneva Convention on many many counts. Mm-hmm. And of course, it took Churchill and it, you know, Churchill with with balls of steel <sighs> and, a re- and a real you know real courage and vision to sign off on that. Right. And, and and to give it his blessing, but then it needed a team of raiders who could get in to carry out the operation. You couldn't get in from the sea because mm-hmm. the uh, the Taranto aqueduct um, was right in the middle of Italy in the mountains. So there's no way you could get land a seaborne force and they would get there without being captured. So it had to be an airborne operation, and that required flying from the UK around about eight hundred. 100, 900 kilometers to to Italy to find a tiny drop zone in the midst of the Italian Apennine Mountains mm-hmm. and to drop a force of raiders with enough explosives to dry up to blow up the aqueduct. Bearing in mind there had never been an Allied airborne operation before, right. and so in so in February forty one that mission was launched. And it was called Operation Colossus, the first ever airborne operation by Allied forces, and thirty six raiders. Um, parachuted into the into the Italian mountains and they did blow up the aqueduct and cut off the water supply to all uh, the, those people that had been targeted an absolutely incredible undertaking right but i think what's going to help support the naysayers like you say in your book is one i don't think they've realized that it was successful at first because it was hard to tell and also um if i remember correctly i i think all of the operatives were captured um, and so as far as the, the naysayers are, are concerned, this was a massive failure. But, of course, they don't realize all the details yet. You're absolutely right. So what happened with Colossus is they got in, they blew up the aqueduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they were supposed to march to the Italian coast and get picked up by the British submarine HMS Triumph and taken back to, 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 to friendly shores. Right. However, 48 hours after the attack, a, 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 a British reconnaissance aircraft flew over the valley and took photographs of the attack site. And because it did so from around about 10, 15,000 feet vertically above the aqueduct, and because the aqueduct had dropped vertically where they'd blown up the piers, it appeared to those right. studying the photographs that the aqueduct was still intact. And so the message went back to British headquarters to London that the mission had been a failure. And then the War Office held an extraordinary meeting at which they decided the only way the mission could have failed was if all the raiders had been captured, and therefore there was no point sending in HMS Triumph to collect them, because, of course, they were all in the bag. And so the submarine was turned around, and duly all the Operation Colossus raiders were captured, and and one of them, um, who was actually Italian of of, of birth, was immediately shot as a traitor, and the rest went into captivity. So, yes... The official reports on Colossus branded it an abject failure, and therefore the naysayers were given absolute a carte blanche to criticise and carp against airborne operations, but in saying exactly what they'd always always maintained that these yeah. were impractical, unproven, and a waste of resources. But as you said a moment ago, um, at the very least, Churchill is someone who is irrepressible, and and the and the dash and the daring of this kind of raid, even though it, it appeared at first not to be successful, it's not something he's going to let go. But at the same time, and you and you point this out very well in your book, Churchill can't just do whatever he wants. He can't just give an order and then everything falls into place. I mean, the military 
parts of the military were, um, you know, very steeped in tradition, were um, giving some pushback. And so this is not just an easy decision for him to make. There's going to be some fighting and this is going to take time, which brings in to the story the idea of another raid in the future. But before we get to that, could you introduce us to Claude Wavell? Wavell? Uh, he's looking at an aerial reconnaissance photograph. There's a small dot in the photograph that's nagging him. He can't quite figure it out. And so this is going to lead to an incredible story all on its own. Yeah, sure. Just before I do that, one yeah. other point. I mean, you've raised, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. But the other thing to bear in mind is this, okay? Mm-hmm. When, when when Churchill proposed that the commandos should be called the commandos, the war right. office blocked it. And they said, you can't call them the commandos because that, that suggests they're like the original Boer commandos who wore uh. no uniform, had no officers, didn't salute, uh, had no military <laughs> discipline and were basically guerrilla fighters. Right. And, and Churchill said, that's entirely the point. <laughs> and, and, that's what and, we want. And, and the war office said, no, you should call them because they were called the special service volunteers because you had to volunteer to join special service. You should call them. And I'm not joking. You should call them the the special service volunteers or the SS for short. Oh, God. And at which point it was pointed out, you may as well call them the Gestapo. And Churchill, right. you know, Churchill won the argument and, and, and they became the commandos formally. But they were deeply unpopular yes. with a military high command, which was traditionalist. Still steeped in all in, in all the, the rigors and um, uh, traditions of, of of the military going back to the First World War. So yes, mm-hmm. there was a fight on their hands. Wow! And then, as you say, um, Claude Wavell, who was a, a brilliant uh, photo analyst. So I think it's a fact that's little known, even to to uh, students of the Second World War, that anything up to eighty percent of all intelligence used in battle was actually, from aerial photographs, played an absolutely pivotal and key role. And, and, and the craft was really perfected by the RAF, the Royal Air Force, at RAF Medmanhan, which was a grand country house in the south of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, at RAF Medmanhan, by the end of the war, half the staff were Americans because the Americans sent over their, their photo analysts to, and, and, and their experts to learn the craft from the RAF, and it was a brilliant tie-up between the two countries. Anyway, RAF Medmanham, Claude, Claude Wavell was studying a photograph of a French clifftop installation, and they were searching for what they believed to be was a German radar, a paraboloid dish, so mm-hmm. a absolutely groundbreaking piece of technology if it existed, something way, way beyond anything that we might have. And the reason they believed that the Germans had it was because the losses being being suffered by bomber command were mounting exponentially and were becoming unsustainable, which would mean we could no longer carry on sending the bomber missions into Nazi-occupied Europe, which was key. Mm -hmm. And as Claude Wavell studied this photograph, this dot, which could just be a cow on the clifftop, it might (laughs) even be a speck of dust on the film, he just had this sixth sense that maybe this was the elusive German paraboloid radar. And so he challenged a, 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 an incredibly brave and talented uh, RAF pilot called Tony Hill, Flight Officer Tony Hill, mm-hmm. to carry out what they called a dicing mission. And these were missions flown literally at 100 feet of altitude, if that, wow. so low that you could get in close enough to get capture your target in absolute close-up detail. Mm-hmm. And that was the kind of photograph you needed to prove the dot was, was the para- paraboloid radar, if it was. And he challenged uh, uh, Tony Hill to, to carry out a dicing mission over those French cliffs, which Tony Hill did. He flew the first day, saw the paraboloid with his own eyes and, I, and confirmed it was there. But when he got back, uh, the film, uh, had, the camera had malfunctioned. There was no film. So he went back the next day, which you were absolutely <laughs> forbidden to do. Because right. obviously if he flew one day, the Germans would maybe be forewarned and forearmed. Roared up over the French French cliff tops in his polished duck egg blue Spitfire, Spitfire okay. unarmed by the way, so that they had less weight, so they could could out, outrun any German uh, fighter planes. Right. Fired off his film, came back and captured what are probably the most iconic uh, photo photographs of the whole war. Mm-hmm. And they showed the Würzburg this 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 paraboloid dish sat across the French 
atop the French clifftops, pointing out across the channel to Britain, and just behind it, a very ugly 1920-style French chateau, which was the radar headquarters. And so Wavell then had in his hands proof that the Germans had this absolutely groundbreaking, cutting-edge, directional radar, uh, which, you know, bear in mind the British radar was chain home, these 300, 200 to 300-foot-tall monolithic stationary towers built of clock atop our cliffs. Right. Compared that to what the Germans had, this was a whole different ball game. And so we had, we simply had to find out what this thing could do because it could determine the course of the war. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the stats that you gave in your book, but there were tens of thousands of losses in Bomber Command because it turns out the Germans had this incredibly advanced radar. And yet there were those in Britain who said, we are the only ones. We invented it. No one else has got radar. You're completely wrong. And so there's going to be even more internal squabbles when they're when people are trying to say, look, here's proof we have to uh, we have to make some kind of progress on this, which brings in another new player into the story, Reginald Victor Jones, another brilliant person um, who's going to figure into the story and he gets involved. But the thing about him is, if I remember from your book correctly, is it he that has uh, Churchill's ear? Yeah, absolutely. So Re- Reginald Victor Jones, known to everyone as R.B. Jones, young in his 20s, mm-hmm. an upstart, you know, as, as, as viewed by the scientific establishment and the military right. hierarchy, you know, uh, A.P. Watts, the so-called father of radar, the British scientist, he believed the British invented radar. Absolutely wrong. The Germans had invented it, <laughs> it, it, it you know, 30 years ago. Um, but, but what was convinced, you know, the British nation had a tendency, still does, you could argue, to be very arrogant. And, and, and what was a personification of that arrogance? And so whereas R.V. Jones knew, absolutely knew from mm. anecdotal evidence, the losses of Bomber Command, the accuracy of the German flak and their fighters, he knew something was vectoring the, 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 the German anti-aircraft fire and the fighters onto our bomber streams. He knew that. The way the searchlights were directed immediately onto our fighters, something was finding them, something incredibly accurate and incredibly advanced. But the naysayers kept arguing that R.V. Jones was wrong. Churchill was very open to R.V. Jones's perspective, but he needed proof. He needed proof as much as anyone else to prove and to show to the naysayers, you've got it wrong and the Germans do have this. And so R.V. Jones, who actually worked unusually for the Secret Intelligence Service, he was known as the scientist to the spies and was charged with finding all that incredible German technology, which, you know, was in, was in advance of our own. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was charged, along with the people at RF Medmahem, to go find this technology, which was causing us so much harm. That is incredible. Yeah, so he's going to have his own... Um, his own difficulties in doing this, because as you said uh, in the book, yeah, I mean, the the planes would come over, they're found even like 20 miles or whatever out. And so the Germans are more than ready for them. So um, it's going to be horrific. They have to do something. So if you could um, maybe set up the story of Operation Biting Force. And again, um, I I just encourage everybody to get the book because we're going to leave out so many details, but that's just the way things go. But if you could kind of uh, introduce us to this idea and some of the training and the men involved, that would be yeah, great. Yeah, sure. So it was clear to those, to, 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 to uh, R.V. Jones, to Wavell, to mm. Churchill, all those people who saw these incredible reconnaissance photographs of this Würzburg radar dish sat atop the French cliff tops. It was clear that just below there was a beach. So if you've got a beach, mm. supposedly you can, you can take, you can steal the radar carry it down the cliff and take it off the beach by boat. The problem was 
you'd never land a force of commandos on the beach to raid it because it was menaced by any number of German machine gun posts. It would mm -hmm. be a suicide mission. And therefore, the only way to steal the Würzburg radar was to go in by air and parachute just behind the installation on the cliffs and come in and take it and then be taken off by sea, which right. meant the second ever airborne raid by, by, by British parachutists would have to be mounted. So oh. following on from Colossus, yeah. and of course, when everybody studied the raid of the gone before, it was still officially, officially cast mm. as a disaster. Right. And this cast a major cloud over whether Operation Biting, as the radar theft mission was codenamed, would actually get the go-ahead or not. By now, the... Um, the chief of combined operations, so the guy really in charge of special forces, was Lord Louis Mountbatten, who was a cousin to the king. Mm -hmm. And he was a like-minded like uh, free thinker and maverick like Churchill. <laughs> and Mountbatten, you know, with royal blood, it was, hard to, it was hard to stand in the way of somebody like that. So you now had a bit more impetus and a bit more clout behind airborne operations. And, yeah. the, guys, and the guys who started training for for Operation Biting, were really the best of the airborne raiders that had, had were earned their jump wings so far. Many of them came from Scottish regiments mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, there is a very, very long-lived, as you know, military tradition in the, in the Scottish um, highlands and islands. And they were under the command of um, uh, not, not General Frost at the time, but Colonel Frost, who mm -hmm. would go on to become in famous uh, during the, the, the Arnhem operations, Operation Market Garden, you know, um, right. immortalized in the movie A Bridge Too Far. This was, of course, going to be uh, Frost's first airborne operation, as it would be for all the 120 men under his command. So they started this absolutely rigorous and bruising, brutal training in, in, the, in the midst of winter in, in the Scottish locks and highlands, training for this, uh, this, this airborne operation. The problem, though, was this. Mm -hmm. Whilst they were experts, as far as it went, in, in airborne operations and parachute landings, and that side of the operation didn't particularly worry them, they would then have to steal the radar and lay them down with all that heavy loot. They would have to then rendezvous with, with basically small landing craft on the beach Wow. and be taken off by the Royal Navy. And they would have to do that all at night under fire. And during every single dress rehearsal, and there were many, right. not one was successful. Either they ended up in the wrong place and didn't make the rendezvous, or they ended up the right place and made the rendezvous with the boats, but the boats got stuck on a falling tide, and they had to wade back to shore defeated. And oh. so by the time... The moon window, which is the period when the lights, the moonlight is bright enough for pilots to navigate just by the lie of the land. By the time the February 1942 moon window came along, which was the scheduled time for the operation, mm -hmm. there had not been one single operation dress rehearsal of the mission that had gone to plan. Uh, that's incredible because you stress in your book about, yeah, there are some people who are, th are thinking, look, this is going to be Colossus all over again. And like you said, the military is generally defensive minded, which is not the worst thing in the world. They don't have the time, the men, the resources to waste on operations like this. But on the other hand, if you keep sending bombers over, you're going to have unsustainable losses because – you, you mentioned in your book when, when there's a lot of deaths through Bomber Command, those are their best pilots. Those are their trained pilots, the veterans. And now they're having new people come in. And so you're just going to lose quality when it comes to your pilots. It's just a vicious cycle. Something has to happen. So with you're right, with Mountbatten and Churchill, that's probably the only reason this was able to move forward. But it's just sheer desperation on their Absolutely. part. It is. And bear in mind, you know, think of the stakes here, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in terms of, of Western Europe, where has the ground war been fought before D-Day? It's been fought on the Eastern Front, mm -hmm. yeah? yeah? And millions of lives have been lost. And what have the Russians been saying? They've been saying, come on, Britain, come on, America. Right. Come to our aid, help us open a second front. And, and, and American Britain have rightly said, look, we're getting ready, D-Day's going to happen, but you've got to give us time. And in the meantime, the Russians said, well, do something. And the one thing the Brits and the Americans were able to do was send in the bombers to pound uh -huh. to smithereens the German factories making the war machines that were 
allowing the Wehrmacht to drive towards Moscow and to defeat the Russians on the East Front. So getting the bombers through was absolutely critical. Without that, there was a chance that the Russians would cut a peace deal with Nazi Germany and, and Hitler could turn all his attention back to us. And so, so, so stealing this radar and defeating mm. that, the, the, the threat against our, our bomber operations was absolutely key. It could not be allowed to fail. Right. And of course, for someone like me who doesn't have the background that you do when it comes to radar, for me, one of the great ironies was because the German unit was so advanced compared to the British, it was very compact. So the idea of taking parts of it or most of it is actually feasible, whereas you couldn't do that with the uh, the British system because it's so massive. So finally, Operation Biting, and I just love that name because uh, I'm trying to remember what Mountbatten said, something about give the enemy a good biting or something like that. It, <laughs> it's, it's given the green light. So if you could talk us through uh, the raid. And uh, I have to tell you right now that uh, as I was reading this part of the book, I was completely mesmerized. I was on edge. But at the same time, I was backing away from my book, trying to, to, to distance myself from the images that you were painting with your words. This was truly a harrowing experience for these guys. They can be as trained as they want, but all, I think you said in the book, all plans pretty much go out the window once you make contact with the enemy. Absolutely, yeah. So, so uh, as as they you know, and as they got the green light to to finally uh, depart from the UK in in, in the fleet of of, of um, aircraft, mm-hmm. Batten sent them a, a, a message saying, "Go bite them hard." Yeah, <laughs> and 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 indeed, Frost and his hundred twenty raiders intended to. The problem was, of mm-hmm. course. You're flying in a fleet of of basically converted bombers across the Channel. You're flying down the very throat of the thing yes. which is trying to find you. Yes. So it's, it's more or less as soon as you start your journey, you right. are flying into a, a storm, a storm of lead, a storm of fire, because as soon as they were across the channel, the German radar obviously picked them up and yes. was tracking them the whole way. And so as soon as they were in range, the, the, the fleet of 12 bombers packed with these very, very, very heroic and brave men came under horrendous fire. And in the process of, of, of executing their evasive maneuvers, the first aircraft, the first four aircraft, mm-hmm. dropped the first tranche of parachutists into a valley which looked exactly like the valley where the radar was oh. situated until right. the, men, the men got on the ground, whereupon Lieutenant Charteris, he was known as junior to his men because he's only 21 years old, wow. which is something else I always stress. Think of the age, the youth of these men charged yes. to do this operation. Think of the weight upon their shoulders. When, when Junior Charteris, land, Lieutenant Charteris, landed in that valley, he paused for a moment, having broken out their weapons from the containers and armed his men, and said, this is the wrong place. Oh, God. Right. You know, it just it wasn't right, and he realised they'd been dropped in the wrong location. Wow. And bear in mind, this was crucial because Charteris and his force, first down, they had probably the most important task of all. There's mm-hmm. no point in stealing the radar. And bear in mind that uh, Frost had a shopping list of all the bits of the radar that the boffins needed. There's right. no point in stealing all those pieces if, when you get to, when you try to get to the beach, it's in German's hand, German hands, and you get mowed down. There's no so Charteris's force are charged to be first in and secure the breach. And actually, they've been dropped in the wrong place. And so Charteris tries to think to himself, have we been dropped before the proper oh, drop zone or after it? Because right. that depends which direction he marches his men in. And he watched the next aircraft come over, and he, he, just, he just gambled on what he right. saw. And he said, we've been dropped short. We've got to move northwards, follow me. And they, but he basically said, we will march to the sound of the guns. That meant where we first hear the first gunfire, that's where we've got to be. Wow. And, it, and indeed they did. That's exactly what they did. As Junior Charteris and his men rushed, ran northwards, with the, laden down with all their weaponry, eventually they heard the, the, the sound of the first fighting as Frost and his men attacked and seized the radar pits. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they ran to the, to, the, to the sound of the fighting. And in that way... Uh, issuing the Scottish war cry, which I can't <laughs> sadly do in Gaelic because I can't speak Gaelic, but it right. basically means it translates as the antlers of the deer and right. yelling that blood curdling Scottish war cry. They, <laughs> ran, they ran down the, uh, the gorge, which leads to the beach 
assaulted the German positions and 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 took took the the the, the beach and it, it fell into uh, Allied hands. Right. And meanwhile, Frost and his raiders have, have taken the um, the radar pits. This the, the the radar expert, a chap called Flight Sergeant Cox, mm-hmm. who's been bolted onto the mission at the last moment, has managed to dismantle all of the pieces on the shopping list, and they've got shopping trolleys. I kid you not. They've got <laughs> foldable, canvas-sided <laughs> shopping trolleys, right. and they've loaded all the radar kit into the shopping trolleys. And bear in mind, it's February, and the French cliffs are thick with snow. Yes. And they push their shopping trolleys loaded with all the, ra- the stolen radar kit through the snow, having left demolition charges on, on, on the radar pit to blow it up, what remains of it. And they've got to the cliff tops, fought their way down and got to the beach. And then, of course, when they believed that, you know, they'd really pulled it off and it was all over, the worst uh, possibly happened, which was that the French sea mist had rolled in and the signal that they had to give to call the Royal Navy in with the landing craft wasn't seen by the flotilla waiting just offshore because, mm. because of the mist. Yes. And so Prost had to basically set, a, set defensive positions knowing very shortly, very shortly, they could even hear the engines. The German heavy armour and armoured cars would be arriving to wipe all out. And it was only because the commander of the Royal Naval Flotilla, a chap called Cook, who was actually from the Royal Australian Navy, it was only because he, pretty much against his, against his orders, just sent the landing craft in anyway, without seeing the signal, not knowing what they were going to find, that they actually got to the shore, pulled Frost and his men off, got the radar loot to board one of the very fast motor torpedo boats and rushed it back to Britain. I have to let you know that during two points of that part of the book, which it felt like it just, it, it, in, in some ways it went on forever and in other ways it was over in a second because that's how, you know, it's how dramatic this is. When when they're undoing parts on the dish, for lack of a better word, the, the, the words bird, and they're being shot at and you can just hear the metal, the bullets pinging off. So, the very thing that they've come to take apart and to get is, is and at the same time saving them from being shot by the Germans who are getting ever closer. And when they're on the beach and you're just and the, the radios aren't working, some of them um, don't have radios because they maybe they were lost during the drop. I'm trying to remember. But no one's communicating with anybody. The boats are out there. They can't see the men on the beach. The men are on the beach. They can't see the boats. That just was driving me crazy. And I swear I was biting my nails at that point going, what is possibly going to happen don't tell me that everybody's going to die and and this is going to be ruined but you're right the one guy breaks the rules which was needed the men are found but not everybody got off the beach no no it's 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 fascinating because during the training the raid they 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 trained one of the one of the commandos to use a flash photographer sorry a flash camera with 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 you know real film this was all the age of digital technology and so as, as they're taking apart the radar dish, and as they're under this horrendous fire, one of the <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. One of the individuals starts to take photographs, and of course, every time yes. he takes a photograph, there's a massive flash. <laughs> right. The radar, the radar dish, and all the radars are silhouetted in the flash, and the Germans have a brilliant target to aim yes. at. Yes, shoot here, yeah. <laughs> shoot here, please. And eventually, Frost, the commander, has to yell out, "Stop taking bloody photographs!" <laughs> no. <laughs> There are parts of it which kind of were kind of you know this this b- bizarre macabre macabre black black comedy. But, right. but you're you're absolutely right. You know, um, as they pull away from the beach, and as this as as Commander Cook makes that brilliant and very brave decision to to go in and rescue them anyway. As they're pulling away, um, uh, Frost finally gets a radio signal from the shore. Yeah, and he thinks, well, how can I have a radio signal from the shore? all my men should be aboard the ships. And he realizes that it's, it's some of the signalers calling to be picked up and six men have been left behind. And the reason they got left behind was largely because, or some of them are injured, but the Mm. others are those individuals who are trained as medics and had lingered to try to tend to the injuries of their comrades. And so that all those six have been left on the beach And, and in due course, those guys get captured. Even though it's a very short moment in the book, when Frost finds out, and and, I've, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at first I think he only knows about two people that were left behind, but there were really six. You could just 
feel the angst coming from him. Like, we've got to turn around. We've got to go get these men. We've, we've done all this. We've sacrificed so much. But the mission is bigger than his desire to save his men. If you don't get that information back to London, this has all been for nothing. And the dark days will just continue. But that just moment where you just feel him wanting to forget everything just to save those men. I mean, that's what, I don't know, working together and practicing and training together, it just bonds you, I, I think, like no other occupation in the world. Yeah, so so Frost gets the radio message and his immediate instinctive reaction without without the, you know, without a second of, of hesitation is we're turning around and going back in. Right. He would have done that, of course, but but bear in mind they are now on Royal Navy ships and then no uh, longer, it's no longer Frost in command. It's, it's Cook in command, the Royal Naval Commander of, of the Tormenta Flotilla. That's what they called the, 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 the um, flotilla of boats that, that, mm-hmm. that were there to rescue him. And Cook rightly says, oh, no, you're not. Yeah. We're heading back to Britain. And those men are being left behind. Hellishly hard decision to take, but the right one. Yes. And you're absolutely right again. When you've trained and bonded and fought alongside and bled alongside, you know, your fellow comrades uh, you know, on the front line of war. There is no other bond like that. And that's why Frost did not want to leave his men behind. And you're right, because whenever you watch movies, Hollywood movies of war, it's always these guys in their 30s, you know, that kind of stuff. But these are kids. I yep. mean, like you said, some of them are 19, 20, 21. Yep. There, there were two gentlemen who figured out that they had a birthday that was one day apart, and they were going to be 21. They were yep. not even 21. And not. And I, if I remember correctly, one of them doesn't make it. Yeah, so it's, it's Lieutenant Charteris and his, his, mm. his, one of his fellows on, on, on the flight in, and they're the guys that get dropped in the wrong valley. But yeah, whenever I speak about this book, which I do a lot, I just get people to pause yeah. for a second in the audience and say, consider their youth. Consider yes. what they were taking on. Consider the burden of command. Consider the responsibility of knowing if you failed in Operation Biting in this mission, you might fail to, to change the course of the war in our favor. And imagine yeah. taking all that on board and you're not even yet 21. That's, yeah, I was barely figuring out who I was at 21, much less yeah. any kind of responsibility. Like, but, but you get the sense that they go out as a 20-year-old, they go through this mission, and the ones that come back, it, it doesn't matter their age anymore. They're now veterans. They probably have a different appreciation. The war has been brought home to them, and you just get, you just get the sense that it transforms them regardless of age. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, you often read accounts, uh, uh, you know, from, from, from guys in these kind of units, in particular in the Second World War, mm-hmm. and they say, we came out of the mission as old men. Right. Oh. So it doesn't just it doesn't just age you in terms of maturity. It ages you in terms of physical and mental exhaustion. Right. Um, you know, so these guys came back and yes, they had pulled off one of the most extraordinary raids of the war. Uh, and certainly, it went, you know, <laughs> incredible part of the story. So right. <laughs> when the Germans <laughs> inspected the radar pit and realized the Würzburg was no more, yeah. um, of course, we had blown up the radar pit with demolition charges to try to hide the fact from the Germans that we'd stolen uh, it. Do you understand? Because right. yes. if the Germans knew we'd stolen it, they then think, okay, if they've stolen our Würzburg, they're going to try and do things to blind and block our Würzburg. But mm-hmm. if they just thought it was a raid to blow it up, they might not. They might not have those suspicions. So we'd blown the radar pit up. But right. in dash down the cliff tops, Frost and his men had had to abandon the trolleys, the shopping trolleys, oh. and all their all their wrecking gear, so all the wrenches and hammers and chisels. And so right. it was clear that we'd this had been a snatch and grab mission, oh. and, not, and, and not a not a standard raid. And so you're now the German commander, okay? You've mm-hmm. realized that under your watch, and bear, in, and bear in mind, you could be serving on the Eastern Front right. and, and serving in Normandy as a cushy little number in running a radar <laughs> station, and you've just realized that under your watch, the Brits have been over and stolen probably the most top secret and, and sensitive bit, bit of German technology that existed at that time. And you're thinking... Hmm. Someone's, <laughs> someone's got to tell Hitler. <laughs> and I kid you not, 
they didn't tell him for 48 hours because no one could pluck yeah. up the courage. No one could pluck up the courage. <laughs> and when they did, he went absolutely apoplectic. He was beside himself with rage. And, right. and, and all those units, so that's the army units tasked with the security and the Luftwaffe units who were tasked with running the radar operation, yeah. uh, installations, all those units were summarily removed from France and sent to the Eastern Front, where most of them perished. Right. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Oh my goodness, yeah. And... Now, incredible as it may sound to the listeners, this story is far from over because they've got this technology, but this is where the scientists and the engineers have to get uh, involved in this. Even R.V. Jones has got again, and he's going to be able to tell when he takes a look at uh, all the various parts that they that they brought back. One, not only have the Germans, you know, have their own version of it, it is superior and it's been around for quite some time, relatively speaking. Yeah, so... One of the really fascinating. One of the top items on the on the shopping list, item number one on the shopping list of what to steal was the aerial that span around in the centre of the dish. Right. Right. But very near the top of the list was steal all the labels. So these mm. are these are metal, um, you know, labels riveted onto each of the components. The right. reason being. The Germans, as we all know, are extremely efficient. They like keeping records. Oh, yes. You know, very good at record keeping. And every single label had a sequential number. And so by studying the labels alone, they could work out, of course, the year of manufacture, which was 1939, but much more importantly, how many units were being manufactured per month. Okay? And oh, they, so from that, they extrapolated that the Germans had started manufacturing the Würzburg in 1939, and since then they had made thousands, which meant the whole of the coastline of Nazi-occupied Europe right. would be defended by Würzburg radar stations. And so there was no way through. Apart from, interesting, immediately after stealing this Würzburg, <laughs> right. so this one, this one radar installation Bomber Harris seized the moment, literally two or three days later, sent 300 British bomber aircraft through the French defence, sorry, the, the German defences on the French coast right. at that very point, yeah, so yeah. where there was no longer Würzburg, got them through without losing any, got them over Paris, bombed the Renault plant, which then was making uh, war machines for the German military, pretty much destroyed it and got them all home, barring three aircraft. An incredible, incredibly successful mission. And that just went to show what you could achieve if you could get rid of the radar, the, the all-seeing eye in the sky. But, but even then, that's incredible because you know the Germans are going to replace that one. This is a one-off thing. And, and yes, it, it feels good to be able to announce the uh, success of the mission. Yes, it's good to be able to announce this one particular bombing raid. But nothing's changed if they don't do something with this technology because they still can't get through to bomb to render or weaken the, um, the war production capabilities of the Germans all over Europe. So this is only getting started. Yeah, so, so two things change. Mm -hmm. The first thing that changes is this. Churchill, <laughs> Frost, the commander of Operation Biting, is having a bath <laughs> in, his, in his quarters, literally hours after the getting home from the mission. Right. There's a knock on the door, and his batman says, Sir, you're wanted uh, in Whitehall, so in London, at the head of British government. Right. And Frost... And Frost has to jump out of the bath, dress, jump in a car that's waiting. He's whisked up to London, and he's whisked into the war rooms, Churchill's war rooms, which are these fantastic subterranean bunkers and basements below, which run below Whitehall. Right. And, and he's waiting in a room, not knowing what on earth he's been called for. <laughs> and, and all the greater the good of the political and military establishment start filtering into the room. And then, beautific as ever, Churchill turns up. And he's got this rare, rare for that 
that, 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 you know, the last few months when it's been very, very dark indeed on all fronts for the Allies, Churchill turns up with a rare smile on his face and he says to Frost, tell me the story of the raid. And so Frost relates the whole the whole, you know, blow by blow account of what happened. And in the war rooms, they've, they've, they've got the, the scale model that was made at RF Medmanhun, the, the, the photo reconnaissance center. They got the scale model of the cliffs and the Würzburg and, 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 and the, the radar headquarters. And Churchill, right. when Frost has finished, goes up to the scale model and he runs a finger down the cliff following the route that the, um, the, the, the Frost and his men bought the, bought the radar down to the beach. Mm-hmm. And he says... He says, these raids, there must be more of them. Because Operation Biting already has achieved something incredibly significant. It's proven to the British people yeah. and the American people and all our military commanders the concept of airborne operations, raids behind enemy lines, can work and can score incredible battle successes. That's one massive achievement of Operation Biting immediately. But secondly, the... The radar, the components of the radar mm-hmm. are taken to the laboratories of the boffins where R.B. Jones and his colleagues sit down and start to reassemble it. And in doing so, they have, they have one great ally, which is that they've taken three Germans prisoners of war <laughs> during right. the raid. Right. And, they've dra- and they've dragged them back to British shores. One of them, uh, who was a, who's a radar uh, technician who worked on the installation, happens to be extremely willing to help the British. By sheer chance, at the start of the war, his wife had been pregnant with their first child, and he'd asked for permission for leave to go back and be there at the birth of his child, and his commanding officer in the German military had refused. And Mm -hmm. by the time he got home, his infant child had died. So he'd never got to see his his child. Mm -hmm. And since then, he had been... Uh, less than um, com- compliant in terms of the positions he'd been placed in the German military, and he'd ended up spending a lot of time in German military prisons. Yeah. And so when he's brought to Britain, Britain and R.V. Jones sits him down and says, look, you know, help us and we can help you. You, you know, you, you'll last out the rest of the war in a prison of war camp, but it's not too bad. It's, it, compare that to being on the Eastern Front. Yeah. Heller is the guy's name, proves remarkably helpful. And he sits down and he duly shows R.V. Jones and his colleagues how to clip back together the Wurzburg like a giant piece of Meccano. <laughs> and lo and behold, they plug it into the electricity and they're able to fire it back up and Frankenstein-like breathe life back into it and get it working. And from that, they're mm-hmm. able to study it. From that, they're able to work out the frequencies upon which it broadcasts. And because it's tunable over a very large range of frequencies, they realize it's going to be hellishly difficult to jam by traditional electronic signals. Right. But by the greatest of ironies, in a way, I mean, Churchill, an amazing man, as I say, the man of the, man of the hour, the, the, the man who you know, gave us the will to fight, mm-hmm. um, kept the flame of resistance alive until you, know, the, you, the Americans, who come in and join us. Churchill... Was a, was a really, really accomplished amateur scientist. And as early as 1937, he'd been studying radar, and he'd said, might it be possible, and I'm paraphrasing, to scatter in the sky tinfoil strips to mimic uh, the radar signature of bombers and confuse the enemy's radar. Right. And there's, there's a female uh, a professor called Joan Curran working with Arby Jones and others, and she sits down and starts to study whether this idea of using tinfoil strips to blind the Würzburg is possible. And the more they study it, the more they, and the more she refines the length and the thickness to cut the tinfoil strips to, right. the more they realize this will work. And eventually, they invent something which they codename window, which are the, these massive bales of tinfoil strips, which you tip out of a bomber's uh, bombay as you're flying in on a mission, and which disperses in the air, and each tiny tinfoil strip produces on the Würzburg screen the exact same radar echo as a bomber, and it looks like there are tens of thousands of bombs <laughs> all across the German skies. And that's how right. they, they work out, having stolen the, the Würzburg, the way to blind it. 
God. And I think it's R.V. Jones that reminds Churchill, it's like, you know, you had this idea years ago. You're right. It was just a moment of insight from a very inquisitive mind, which proves fruitful. And now, finally, after everything they've been through, they do have something to counter the German radar. But there's still going to be fights. Do we use it? Do we tip our hand? So the, the contest between maybe you could call it the naysayers and the more proactive people or maybe just the more conservative or whatever, the, the internal battles are not over with yet. Yeah, so, you know, back, back to the same old, same old. You know, uh, those individuals at the top of the British scientific establishment and military establishment uh, argue windows should not be used. And, and, and their, their reasoning is, if we use window, we scatter it across the German skies. Obviously, right. the Germans are going to find it in the morning, uh, you know, being be eaten by German cattle and things like that. Right. And they're going to then say, what's this stuff? Reverse engineer it, work out what it does, and then maybe they'll be able to use it to blind our radar. Well, in truth, right. the Germans have already had it. And their code name for our version, window, was Dupel. Okay? Uh -huh. And it was, it was so top secret so top secret in Germany that when we used it against them, none of their radar operators knew what it was because it was such a secret. No one knew about it. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. That's why it was so successful because all the German radar operators up, up to a very senior level had never seen anything like it before, but the Germans did have it. And so our argument or the argument made by those in, you know, the, 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 those in the scientific establishment, the naysayers, let's call them, uh, were, were, um, were probably wrong, very likely mm -hmm. wrong. But it, but it did lead to a delay of several months before window was used. And it did lead, without a shadow of a doubt, mm -hmm. to thousands more bomber crews, that's British and American and Australian and New Zealand and Canada, Canadian and all the other nationalities who fought in the Allied cause right. and Polish and French. It did lead to thousands more of those air crews getting shot down and losing their lives. That delay cost thousands of lives. I would never want that kind of responsibility, but it's a war. They have to make these decisions and live with them, not unlike Frost leaving those men behind on the beach. It's just incredible. And again, even now, the story is not over because this new technology, the way they can counter the German radar, it's going to affect the uh, the V1 and V2 rocket production, and it's going to affect D-Day as well. So I'm um, I'll leave it up to you if you want to talk about that or if we want to leave something for the listeners. But this story is far from over. And the way it just weaves through, it's, it's a combination of technology and bravery and just, uh, as you said, balls of steel earlier. But it was something they had to do where they were going to spend the next 10 whatever years on the defensive as opposed to what Churchill wanted to do, which was take the fight to the Nazis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just touching upon the V1 thing and then, then yeah. maybe rounding off there. But, but you know, th those first raids using window, which were against Hamburg, and Hamburg was the most heavily defended city in all of Western Europe at the time. Right. Massive, um, you know, flak towers, radar towers, massive night fighter defenses. And uh, in the summer of 43, the first, for the first use of window on a massive bombing raid over Hamburg. Mm -hmm. And and, and, and the, the, there are these transcripts of the German radar operators looking at their screens going, my God, my God, the, the, you know, the British and the British are replicating themselves. You know, <laughs> thousands and thousands of echoes of bombers all across their screens. And over those three days, Hamburg was decimated. And, right. you know, again, Hitler's told the news and he's apoplectic with rage. But Churchill realizes that this incredibly simple piece of technology is 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 scoring such incredibly amazing results and he says pretty much immediately you are now going to fly further and harder than you've ever flown before and you'll use window as the way to blind the enemy to what you're doing and no one was told the actual real nature of the targets they right. were told they were going to bomb a radar factory in fact they flew through to the german uh, v1 and v2 development factories and, and laboratories on Peenemund. Mm -hmm. And they bombed them very, very extensively. And that led to the SS demanding that the V1 and V2 uh, development production fell under SS control, not Wehrmacht, not military, military control. Right. And it led to them moving all the, all the production and research underground into these tunnels uh, uh, buried, burrowed into the mountains. And it put back the V1 and V2 program by months 
which in wow. itself had a massive impact on the outcome of the war. So, yeah, in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the stealing of a radar, the simple theft of a piece of top-secret top technology and all the incredible ramifications from that, this was a mission which changed the course of the war. And we're going to leave it to the listeners to find out how window played its part in the D-Day landings. And again, listeners, we have left out so many people, so many details. You're able, you're able even to bring in um, just to paint a uh, more fuller picture of stuff that's going on in the Pacific as well. So I encourage everybody to get this book. Uh, Mr. Lewis, thank you very much for your time. This was an incredible read. Um, I, I don't know. I, like I said, I just sat down and it was tense from the moment it started until the very end. And I'm not going to lie to you. At the very end, there were some tears. I'm, I'm strong enough to admit that. But when you put at the very end that the actual dish to this day cannot be located. I just have to say when this COVID-19 scare is over, I'm going to come to your house, pick you up, and we're going to go find it together. And that will be your next book. Hey, listen, I look forward to it, Ray. That's been really great. <laughs> It's, it's always good to talk to a fellow enthusiast, and uh, that was very enjoyable. And I look forward to going on the hunt for the Würzburg. There we go. So everyone, it's, uh, the book is Churchill's Shadow Raiders, The Race to Develop Radar, World War II's Invisible Secret Weapon. Mr. Lewis, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. Hey, everyone. Ray here. Uh, thanks for listening to the episode. Um, one last program note. This book will be available on April 28th, just uh, two days from now. So uh, make sure you check that out. Also, it will be available on Audible. So for those of you like me who are walking your dog two or four times a day, even though the dog doesn't want to go, now you have something to listen to. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.